Well, we're going to carry on with our uh, series on Philippians, and uh, this morning I'm going to preach you about uh, Philippians 3:17 to 21, and pick up on a, in probably a little more detail, a couple of verses uh, in there. And this morning I want to talk about what it means to live as a colony of heaven on earth. And if you'll remember a few weeks, well, no, it was the end of November, doesn't seem that long ago. I spoke on this theme as well, what it, what it means to be a, a colony of heaven on earth, and um, the idea of, thing, of that is the fact that it's taken from the book of Philippians in Philippi. Ancient Philippi was a Roman colony where you had a series of Romans, usually retired military people who maybe wanted to go back and live in Rome and Italy, but couldn't because they can't all fit into the one city. So uh, the emperor would give them tracts of land and places to live outside of Rome, but they would live as good Romans in that soil outside of Rome. And so Paul picks up on that in uh, Philippians uh, 3, verse 20, uh, but we are citizens of heaven. So I want to reflect on that today, what it means for us to be citizens of heaven. Um, thinking about kind of our own spiritual journeys and so forth, each of us has had different experiences. Uh, for some of you, you may be new to the faith. For others, you've grown up in the church, and uh, there's certain ways of living and thinking, uh, depending on the church context in which we've grown up. I'm teaching the book of Acts this uh, semester, and uh, I had a, um, uh, a colleague of mine come in and give her a testimony just to mix things up so the students aren't listening to my voice all of the time, which I think they're happy about. Anyway, so she came in and, and uh, gave us her testimony, and uh, she's probably, I would say, in her 60s, and uh, talked about her, her upbringing in the church as a uh, very much a series of rules and regulations around no playing with cards, you know, the jokers and ace of spades, those cards, not like Uno or something like that, and no movies, dances, theaters, and so forth, and I was looking at the kids as they were hearing this, and and it just seemed like she was being told not to drink water. Um, that's how much sense it made to them. Um, there was one little thing that just dawned on me, apparently even at our college, well, what used to be Canadian Nazarene College, Rook was a very popular game, and uh, this lady had gone to Canadian Bible College in Regina, and Rook was popular at that school too, and I didn't know why, but according to her, it's because they could play, still play the same card games, but not use the regular playing cards. I don't know, is this true? Who knows? Um, for us, the big debate when, we were, when I was growing up as a teenager, I grew up in the East Coast, and so I was familiar with some of these things. You know, Sabbath is inactivity and no movies and this business. Um, the big debate for us was, okay, so we're not allowed to go to the movie theater to watch movie A, but I could go to, well, they didn't have Blockbuster back then. It was... Big Al's movie rental. So I could go to Big Al's, either have my choice of beta or VHS, and then bring home and watch that same movie. And that's the ethical dilemma. We're still watching the same thing, just in a different location. Hmm. Never really solved that one. So for many Christians, um, growing up in, in traditions like the Church of the Nazarene and, and so forth, uh, we tended to define holiness, like what it meant to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and in very outward 
ways, right, to demonstrate that we are set apart. And, and um, Paul the Apostle had a very similar experience with his upbringing in, uh, in Judaism of his day. And uh, so I want to just read a few verses about Paul's holy heritage, and Pastor Brian had spoken to us this a little bit um, last week. Early in Philippians 3, Paul talks about his religious culture, uh, basically before he met Jesus, and, and he gives his litany of things here, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, a, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and then as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, we don't have time in 20 minutes to go into this whole thing, but when Paul talks about the law here, he's not talking about the entire law, because you know in Romans 3.31, Paul says, we uphold the law. Make up your mind, Paul, anyway. So he's not talking about the whole law. He's talking about specific laws that became really important to Jews during his time to set them apart from unclean Gentiles. And these were laws such as circumcision, which he referenced here, Sabbath observance, and certain dietary or food laws. And while the intention was probably pure when these first laws were developed, likely in the second century BC, because of some stuff happening with this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes, but maybe we'll save Antiochus for another day. Uh, but he was a pagan king who basically was getting Jews to renounce all of their Jewish activities that made them distinctly Jewish. And uh, the response was to that, once he was overthrown, was to bring back these laws and emphasize them that much more because they gave them a sense of self-identity, of, of meaning, of who they were as God's holy and chosen people. So circumcision, Sabbath, and as I tell my students with food laws, not having your egg McMuffin with pork. That's the food laws. But Paul undergoes a huge transformation that he looks back, so under the, this is his righteousness, when it comes to these laws, he's completely blameless. But in the light of Christ's coming, he makes a scandalous statement later on in verse 8, which isn't on the slide, he calls these things scubalon. Yes, scubalon, dung. If you grew up on a farm, you put in your own adjective or noun. Um, it's, a, it's kind of an offensive word he uses to describe this Jewish heritage of his, that it is dung, it is garbage, which is a dialed-down form of how to designate that. So, so what has happened that Paul could make this such an about face and speak so in such a derogatory way to things that his contemporary Jews held so dearly? Well, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit that holiness is now possible on the inside because these things only marked you as holy on the outside. And Paul's really clear in Romans that without the indwelling presence of the Spirit, the verdict of the law is not life but rather death. It's, as Jesus himself even said, it's not on the outside stuff defiles, but rather the stuff on the inside. Thoughts of the heart, intentions, attitudes, these things give rise to actions which aren't great on the outside. So Paul, in light of this, says, be imitators of me. And I was wondering when it was going to happen, and it has, my mouth has gone dry. 
Paul says in verse 17, be imitators of me. And I know verse 17 isn't up there, and that was intentional, kind of. He says, be imitators of me, and as others who have basically imitated me, follow them as well. And he gives a reason as to why they should imitate him now and not under his old life under the law. He says, because many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. So this is Paul basically giving a very kind of vivid graphic description of what those who insist on life under the law, what really they're all about at the end of the day. So this statement, their God is the belly, is basically uh, a reference to Jewish dietary food laws, which are even commanded in Leviticus, for instance. There's a series of unclean foods that, that Leviticus, God in Leviticus, had deemed unclean. But now in the light of the coming of the true king, Jesus Christ, to insist that your identity would come from obedience to dietary food laws is a form of idolatry, because you're putting significance in something that it is not the almighty living God, but rather a commandment of God. And so that's why he can say, their God is the belly, the belly just being a a cipher or a symbol for an emphasis on Jewish dietary food laws. So to reject the message of the gospel in favor of this legislation just basically keeps Jews enslaved to something that will never give life, but as Paul says, their end is destruction. In Galatians 4, Paul puts it this way. Now, this is speaking to Gentiles in the situation in the church of Galatia. Jews coming in, Christian Jews saying, hey, you Gentiles, you don't think that you're all full of the Spirit as much as you think you are in an uncircumcised state and eating your egg McMuffins with pork. Forget it. So this is Paul's response to them, that is to those Gentile Christians contemplating undergoing works of the law. He says, now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, look at the language. How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? That big weak and beggarly elemental spirits, if you studied any stoicheia, uh, stoichiometry and chemistry, it's stuff from the natural world, so it's, 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 a, it's a pagan category. That's the Greek word for elemental, in case you care, stoicheia. But anyway, so, so these, these element, how, how is it you're turning it back again to a pagan background? But they're not. They've just accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the problem is they're accepting works of the law as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's saying that's just like going back to a pagan background. That's to enslave yourself. Why is it? Because that stuff, laws on their own outside of relationship with Jesus Christ, just deal death and destruction. And so he says rhetorically, how can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Wow, it's like really scandalous that Paul is speaking of something that is revealed in Scripture in this way. What gives? And then finally, Paul says in verse 19, Their minds are set on, oh, I missed one. Their glory is their shame. 
Thanks, Jeannie. Their glory is their shame. That's the other reference here. This is another reference likely to circumcision. So from, in a, from Gentiles who look at Jews, the Gentiles would label Jews as mutilators of the flesh. And from a Jewish perspective, uh, nakedness is shameful. So there's that Jewish background plus a, a Gentile understanding of circumcision just leaves you as in a, in a shameful state. And, and for Paul, that background of circumcision to glory in this is nothing but shame. It's not what God intends outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. And so to sum it all up, he says, their minds are set on earthly things. It reminds me of when um, Peter had made the de- great declaration to Jesus in response to the question of Jesus, who do, people, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus begins to teach about how he must suffer much and die and be rejected and, and all the rest of it. And, and what does Peter say in response to that? I don't think so. And Jesus, in response to that, says, you're not thinking the things of God, but rather the things of humanity, the things of this world. But yet, Peter's understanding of what a Messiah should do was actually informed by the Old Testament. If you read Psalm 2, a Messiah sits at God's right hand and crushes enemies under their feet. And Jesus, to say that I'm a Messiah and I'm going to let enemies crush me, Peter just can't get his mind around that. So what is happening here? Why are all these points of discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament? And there's a real challenge here that all of this stuff that for Paul he was faithfully devoted to is revealed in Scripture, but yet now he's preaching against these things. And little wonder that Paul experienced such hostility during his whole ministry. But he realizes that legislation on its own outside of a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, does not lead to transformation, does not lead to, to the people of God being used by God to bring God's saving grace to others, which was the case for Jews during the time of Paul, because those markers of Sabbath, circumcision, and food laws, for them were markers of exclusivity, as to be like, we are set apart and not like you, and we don't want to be like you, and you can't be like us. So the question is, are there things in our church culture or maybe in our personal lives that seem really good and righteous, but don't advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? I grew up in a very kind of legalistic context, and, it's, and it really it saddens me to realize the fact that many of the people that I've grown up with are no longer in the church. In fact, I have one friend who had brothers and sisters faithfully attending the church, and none of them are in the church now, and he attributes it to an emphasis on outward legislation without any emphasis on a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, so you can imagine how hard it would be uh, not just to live in that environment, but to invite people into such an environment where such legislation would seem strange. When Christians, when we get our sense of identity from behaviors or outward forms of obedience and not from relationship with Jesus Christ, then that is idolatry. And Paul says this in a few different ways. No thing should usurp or replace 
the relationship that we have with Jesus through his spirit. And so then Paul goes on, let's speak positively now. Well, what should we be about in verse 20? Well, a colony of heaven on earth. So he says, but in contrast to everything that I've just said before, which is kind of negative, what should we be, do- we be doing then? He says, our citizenship, our polytuma, is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is King of heaven, is the one who sets the agenda, who sets the guidelines for how his subjects are to live. And we're not in heaven yet, as you can tell, but where the presence of the Lord is, there is aspects of heaven. There is the things associated with heaven of peace, of love, of goodness, of self-control, all of these types of things. So our home, as one scholar puts it, our home, yes, is in heaven, but here on earth we are a colony of heavenly citizens, a group of heavenly citizens who kind of operate on the same set of guidelines and expectations. And this was really challenging for the Christians in Philippi, because there was at least two different versions of what it meant to be a, to be a good citizen in Philippi. One from, the, from the, a pagan Roman context, which was to worship the emperor. At any time, emperor worship was expected of you. So we come and to go to a hockey game or something and sing a national anthem. Well, in Roman times, at a public gathering, you would hail Caesar. Now, if you've turned from idols to serve the, serve the living and true God, when you're in those public gatherings and you don't do that anymore, you're not just going to be like, oh, well, I respect that, that's your view. No, 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 that's not how it works. It's imprisonment, it's persecution. I mean, paganism was, infiltrated every aspect of Greco-Roman society, from worshiping gods of the pantry, premium plus, craft dinner, the penantes, to lares, Safety for our families and loved ones. There was a series of domestic deities that you would have set up in your home. Like there were gods associated with the trade guild. So if you're a drywall or electrician or carpenter, you'd have to offer up uh, praise to these ones when you would gather together with your trade guild. Imagine if you said, I'm not worshiping any of those things anymore, but I'm rather just going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the early Christians were persecuted at every turn because the paganism was so thoroughgoing. So that's an expectation that, well, the citizenship of heaven is going to create some major difficulties for these Christians. Another voice is the religious culture, the Jewish religious culture, which, uh, while Paul, when he first ministered in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue there. There likely was Jews who came to see what was going on in these Christian communities that Paul had established and trying to sort out this business of Paul saying salvation is by faith and not through works of the law. And of course, this is what Paul is responding to here. And so, so Judaizers or Jewish Christians coming in and saying, hey, it's not that easy. You just can't have Jesus through faith alone. You've got to have these works of the law. And so Paul is responding to this stuff. So what needs to define then for, for us, for this colony of heaven. And the world in which we live is, is not straightforward, is it? Even 20 or 30 years ago, well, no, let's, oh, not that far back. Let's even just go 10 years ago. 
Even the, the kinds of students I teach and, and the things that they're thinking about is, is changed over the last 10 years in more complex ways than, I would say, less straightforward, right? And so, you know, we can get into our culture and, and the, the, uh, the relativism and, and all of these sorts of things and the perspectivalism that there's, you know, basically truth for you is what you feel is right, not even necessarily what you think is right, but what you feel is right. So there's all these kind of difficulties facing us within our culture. And, and I want to propose to you that what I am not saying is, well, just, you know, kind of go with it. You have Jesus, so just behave any way you want. No, not at all. Moral and ethical living is absolutely foundational to the Christian life. And, and, and Paul, we see this throughout the New Testament. But what I am saying is that pure and holy living, internally and externally, is to be animated and guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which no matter what we think about what's happening in this world around us, that as we're formed and shaped by the presence of God within us, we're well positioned to begin to journey with those in this world who are really unlike us in a lot of ways. And they would think that we are really unlike them in a lot of ways. But this is the world in which we're to live to show the love of Jesus Christ. And you can't have holiness and not have grace and mercy. And sometimes the posturing of the church, not this church, but the church, to views and ideas which is contrary to the views of the church has, has not always been grace-filled and merciful. But it doesn't mean you can't have conversations about difficult issues. I think part of the challenge in our culture today is the lack of space to have dialogue with one another. But as the people of God, Jesus is our prime example here. He was always hanging around with people that didn't see things the way he saw it. And worse yet, he was having meals with them. Which to an outsider, I think I've mentioned this before at some point here, but to someone looking on at Jesus eating with people who saw things very differently than he did, the assumption would automatically be he agrees with the things that they think. And for Christ, that, that it didn't matter to him. Because he knew who he was in relationship to his heavenly Father. He had that relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's like, if I don't go to where these people are, how will they ever know the good news that is now unfolding through me and eventually through my followers? And depending on where the Spirit leads you, you may end up hanging around with some very unholy people and found in some very unholy places. So my upbringing was to stay away from the unholy places and stay away from the unholy people. And I, I stayed away from all those people. I didn't even go to my high school prom. I remember, um, <laughs> this is kind of humorous at this point, um, in grade nine, uh, a teacher had come around in, in the junior high and to the different classes, kind of polling people on what our next fundraiser should be. And, and one of it was to go and watch a movie in the theater, get all of our families to come and, and so forth. I don't know how it happened. I'm, I'm probably opened my mouth and said something I shouldn't have or, 
which I'm prone to do. And, uh, and uh, I just remember, so the idea was, go to the theater. I had said something like, well, no, I can't do that. And he's, he, he, this guy just lost it. He's like, Rob, you, you suck a lot of, out of this place. You need to start giving some back. I'm like, well, I'm not allowed to. Give me a break. Anyway, so, yeah. So there's no movie theaters for me growing up. But the thing when you look at, when I look back at it, I didn't really have relationships with anybody who didn't think stuff like I thought. And it was all kind of the same people that I was comfortable with. And, and, and I'll tell you, the beautiful thing about the church and what the church should be is you hang around people you would never hang around with in a million years. And, and if you find that that's true in your life, well, praise the Lord, Right? But we, we need more people who aren't like us because this is the mission of God. To take the gospel wherever he leads. And no matter the cost. So maybe the Spirit is prompting you to step out of your own personal culture. So we have a personal culture, right? Which, I'm, uh, as I've told you before, uh, I'm, I'm introverted. So a risk for me is just talking to somebody I don't know, period. Um, another thing I don't like to get is rejected or somebody to say no or something like that, which is surprising being the last born, always asking for things. Maybe, well, anyway, so, so there's personal sorts of things, right? And, and so when you kind of identify something in your own life, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity for you to step out and to take that step into something that, well, isn't in your comfort zone. So this is what Jesus did. He, he, he ministered to people, not like himself, fellowship with him, so that he could just contaminate them with his presence. And we who have the Spirit of God within us, well, we can do the same thing. Acts 1.8 says, you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, fill in Calgary, where this is the ends of the earth. <laughs> We're in the hinterland of Canada. Yes, this is the ends of the earth. That was a joke. But anyway, so... <laughs> To be, thank you, a colony of heaven on earth is to live under the dominion of our King, Jesus Christ, and to adopt the values and ideals of His kingdom, unconditional love for all, no matter what sin they've committed, no matter what sin you've committed, sometimes that's a struggle, how could I do this when I have this struggle in my life? So no matter what, it's stepping out, showing that unconditional love to others. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone you're ministering to. And it doesn't mean either that you need to play all your cards and say, this is what I agree, this is what I believe, so can you still hang around with me? No, you never see Jesus doing that. He just goes and says to the tax collector, can I come have lunch with you? Not reading him the riot act on how he's extorted people so regularly and he needs to pay up. That, that came, but it came out of relationship. So what I want to do this morning is just take a few minutes... And I, I want you to start to hear God now. And this will be a good warm-up for, for Pastor Brian's seminar in a week. It's just to listen. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit about one thing in your life that's a barrier for being like Jesus in the world in which you live. And um, if maybe you're like, well, I know it right now. Maybe you, you know, need to pray about it a bit more. But when you hear it, just repent of it. 
and say, Lord, this is a struggle for me. It's a struggle for me in terms of what you're calling me to do. And, and I give that into your hands. And I'm sorry if it's a, I'm just, you know, speaking to the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry if it's been, uh, you know, a sin I've committed or something that I've thought or whatever the case may be. I just repent of it and I thank you that you've forgiven me. But, or maybe it's not necessarily just a moral act, immoral act or something like that. Maybe it's just, just a fear you have. Well, give that to the Holy Spirit. So let's just take a minute, and there's something else we're going to do after that too. And This is all going to happen very quickly. Let me pray for us, and then we're just going to just be in silence for a moment. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who speaks. And I thank you that you deeply desire to use us to impact this world in which we live with the values and the kingdom of, of your kingdom, which is about love and peace and joy and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. So God, would you speak to me? Would you speak to my brothers and sisters about any barriers within our own lives, Lord, that, or maybe just one barrier that would hold us back from being what you want us to be in this world? And so speak to us in these moments, Lord, I pray. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who speaks, and the word that you brought to my mind, Lord, is timidity. And, uh, and Lord, so would you help me with that, realizing that I've not received a spirit of timidity, but rather of boldness and of love in the Holy Spirit. So I give that to you, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.